three, two, one. This is Into the Absurd, episode 22, with Dr. Nkrumah Grant. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me on your show today. Um, so as uh, Greg just stated, my name is Dr. Nkrumah Grant, and I am a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Idaho. Um, I completed my uh, doctoral studies at Michigan State University, May 2020, where I obtained a dual PhD in microbiology and molecular genetics, as well as in ecology, evolutionary biology, and behavior. Some of my other interests include working on uh, different committees. So I'm, I'm currently on the program planning committee for the American Society for Microbiology. And I've also been involved um, in several instances in different venues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what all kind of research do you do? Um, so my research interests writ large is in evolutionary biology. And basically what I do is I use uh, bacteria to study evolution in action. Um, so that was um, some of my PhD work uh, was based solely upon doing that. Bacteria are ideal organisms to study evolution in action because they're very, very small, um, they, which means that they require very little um, lab space to grow them. Um, they, very, they have very, very uh, pure nutritional requirements, so we know how to grow them relatively quickly. They can be frozen and revived. They have very rapid generation time. So where a human has a generation time is on average about 15 years or so, bacteria can double about 6.6 generations per day, depending on media, or every 20 minutes, um, depending on the type of media that they're using. So um, I use bacteria to study evolution in action, and I really am interested in metabolism, the evolution of metabolism, how selection on different uh, reactions can allow an organism to thrive in an environment and how th those uh, um, traits are inherited over time. So when you're doing this research, does or do you see the bacteria forming new species? Oh no, so evolution doesn't work in that way in a sense okay. that we can visualize these things over a long time scale. So you have to remember the earth is you know, 4.6 billion years old. And if we were to look at the evolution of say like human primates or humans ourselves, you know, we would have evolved in the last second of the last hour, right? So very, very short time spans. Um, speciation from a, a, you know, from a, a, a microbiological perspective, I mean, like when we think about bacteria is actually very, very hard to describe that, um, you know, just because of the different concepts in biology that we have. Um, however, we do see that adaptation occurs, and we know that because we can take more evolved strains from our evolution experiments. So during my uh, graduate studies, I worked in the lab of Dr. Richard Lenski, for example. We could take those bacteria from now. We can, you know, grow them in environments in competition with bacteria or um, bacteria from back in the day, 30 years ago, for example, and we could see that they get better at growing in these environments, for example. We do have some interesting things that also evolved. I have seen that as well. So for instance, one population in this experiment, and I can go in and describe how that experiment works as well later on. Um, so one of these populations in this long-term evolution experiment, I briefly just um, said something about, evolved this novel metabolic ability. That is the ability to utilize a carbon source that none of the other populations could use, including the ancestor and E. coli in general. Wow. So, they're, so you're kind of observing them 
being more efficient with their metabolism, essentially, than previous generations. Yes, in, in, in this case, for sure. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how, so how does this experiment work? All right, great. So, um, so during my graduate studies, and mind you, I would also talk about and speak to what I'm doing um, here at the University of Idaho. I'm working in a completely different system. Um, but during my graduate studies, I worked with E. coli, right? So E. coli is a commensal uh, gram-negative bacteria just found ubiquitously everywhere. Um, it typically doesn't cause disease, though there are some strains that can cause disease, for example, and cause diarrhea and so forth. Um, but I used a non-pathogenic strain of E. coli, and particularly my advisor in 1988, he took a, uh, a population of E. coli, a single cell, an isolate, right? And he derived 12 populations from it. So he, out, he grew them up, then he had 12 replicate populations. Six of those populations, if we played it on media that allows us to differentiate between their metabolism, it forms red colonies and the other six forms white colonies, right? So you can imagine now you have these two um, separate um, uh, parallel flasks, parallel populations with different colors that we can use to now say, for instance, in the future, compare red to white, you know, given the earlier strains and descendants. So every day uh, someone goes into the lab and we take these from these 12 populations from the flasks that have grown using up all of the glucose and it's a minimal glucose environment, glucose being the carbon source. We take 1% of that culture, we transfer it to new media. It uses all of that glucose. And in that time period, it undergoes about 6.6 generations per day. Then we transfer it again and transfer it again, transfer it again. Every 500 generations or so, which is roughly about 75 days, we take samples from those populations and we freeze them and we store them, which creates a system where we can go back and instead of kind of relying on fossil records and these type of things, which have historically been used to make evolutionary inferences, we can directly observe the ancestors and descendants of those ancestors in real time. we can also we can look at them using things like microscopy, which is some things that I have done. Um, it, it lends very well for you know the generation of novel techniques. So, for example, um, genome sequencing um, became readily used, or at least cheap, in some instances in about the year 2000 with the Human Genome Project. Right. So now we are able to subject these populations to large-scale, grand-scale uh, DNA. Um, um, DNA-based uh, experiments and make inferences based upon that. Also, we can do things like transcriptomics where we can look at gene expression in these organisms now um, for relatively cheap and so forth, right? So it lends well to kind of like holding, uh, creating a space or, you know, space holder for, you know, future analyses and technologies as they become developed. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, observing evolution in real time Mm-hmm. Especially with, I mean, all the people that don't really believe in evolution, right? And well, hey, we got it right here. You, exactly. You see it right before your eyes, you know. And I guess, I mean, most of the time people are kind of uh, not really, they don't really understand the full picture, like how it takes millions of years to see evolution of a multicellular organism take place right Mm -hmm. and how say i mean i was talking with this uh, philosophy professor and he did some research on 
on how when we describe things, it's kind of, there's a lot of things that don't really have a spot where they can be easily defined, like a heap of sand. Mm -hmm. Like if you kept removing sand grains from a heap of sand, at what point will it not be a heap of sand anymore, right? And this can kind of be applied to human evolution in the sense where, well, there can't really be a place where there was a first human. There was kind of maybe an in-between area, Mm-hmm, but there mm-hmm. wasn't really ever one single point where, oh, this was the first human, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. That said, we can use the fossil record and evidence um, with, with modern DNA technologies to say that we at least derived from, you know, this last common ancestor, for example. Yeah, right? yeah it, it, exactly. Um, so yeah, there's definitely gray areas, right? That's, you know, these incomplete fossil records as I'm stating, right? Um, and we found, you know, evidence of, you know, even the uh, common ancestors that we found, we find evidence that, you know, there exists sometimes um, earlier forms that could be representative of our um, lineage, of our lineage in, in general. Um, but yeah, that's, the, I, you know, that's what makes um, step using bacteria an ideal system to study evolution, right? Because again, we can go back into the freezer at any given time and we can say, hey, this is exactly where this um, strain come from. Look how different they are. Look at what it can do versus its, its, its parent, for example. So, yeah. Yeah, things, I mean, it's, uh, things change, things adapt. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what do you want to do with this uh, research in the future, your career? Huh, that's definitely complicated. I guess, you know, long, long, big picture goals is to become a professor at a university. So I'm definitely interested in academia, right? Um, you know, teaching at the university, being able to continue research and to train the next generation of scientists, right? So that's definitely um, what I would like to do. Um, I have, you know, began to start thinking about, you know, like uh, different, you know, uh, career focuses in industry or, you know, something thereof, you know, kind of you always need to have a backup plan, right? So, um, but yeah, um, long picture, big picture goals is to, you know, become a professor at a university. Um, ideally, so I guess I could start in, you know, talking about what got me into science in the first place, right? So I'm very, very much so interested in, um, life outside of you know our planet right so I mean, as far as we know we, earth is the only place that has life right however you know we start thinking about you know uh you know different we, we're starting to find planets that has the conditions that you know mirror earth for example and you know for example we have perseverance on mars looking for you know extant life right exactly right we, we believe that mars once was uh, um, habitable and could have been inhabited by microorganisms at least. Um, so I'm very much so interested in using experimental evolution and you know uh, developing evolutionary theory not only to encompass that but actually synthetic biology to actually not look for you know life that may be existing elsewhere in the universe, but um, actually uh, create or generate life that could be um, seeded at different places in the universe, right? And we have organisms, you know, in several extreme environments, you know, highly radio, uh, um, radiation resistant bacteria like Gonococcus radiodorans, for example, or halophiles, organisms that live at, at high salt concentrations, um, organisms that li- thermophiles that live at high uh, temperature um, extremes, for example, right? So we have organisms that live 
in these strange places here on Earth. And because we have technologies that allow us to cut and paste genes from organisms and organisms are pretty plastic in the sense that they can, you know, take up foreign DNA and keep it for the most part. Um, some of them, of course, you know, um, uh, we can actually begin to cut like Legos and build organisms that could live in Mars and be, you know, at high CO2 concentrations, for example, right? So definitely want to use it for more of a, you know, applied uh, side, um, the evolution, uh, evolutionary uh, roots and synthetic biology roots that I'm generating now. And with this, I know some organisms over time can essentially build a atmosphere that's suitable for other organisms like with the algae boom of whenever that was there was a huge algae boom that allowed for um uh, cellular respiration to occur in life forms right exactly right so i mean think about we breed oxygen which is a, a waste product of plants which, and cyanobacteria, right? So if it wasn't for the cyanobacteria, these are small little bacteria that inhabit, you know, marine ecosystems, for example, you know, there wouldn't have been enough oxygen to support, you know, uh, oxygenic, uh, uh, oxygen respiration, for example, um, organisms that respire using oxygen, right? So um, organisms are always, you know, producing metabolites and excreting them into the environment that then serves as, you know, different substrates, or at least has the potential to serve as different substrates for other organisms to take advantage of. And even in, you know, some of these experimental evolution studies, while we are feeding the uh, Escherichia coli, for example, glucose, their waste products include something like acetate, right? And then we see this, uh, we see these uh, environments, these microenvironments in these flasks where you have some of the bacteria specializing on using, utilizing the glucose and other um, uh, bacteria specializing on using the acetate, right? So you're always going to have this niche uh, construction, you know, going on, right? That opens up opportunity for other uh, organisms to exist and evolve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, everything kind of plays its, its role. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you ever delve into environmental philosophy at all? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I, I do think about it. So some of the work um, that I'm doing right now, so currently I work with this species called Methylobacterium extorcans. Um, it's a plant-associated microbe. It lives on the surface of plant leaves. It's also found in sewage and in soils, etc. Um, and it's unique in its ability to use C1 compounds. So C1 carbons are, you know, so glucose, for example, has six carbons. A C1 carbon, a C1 compound would only have one. So something like methanol, for example, it can use methanol for growth. And in doing so, it also uh, takes that methanol and assimilates it and make larger compounds, right? So, you know, I kind of, we kind of use this organism as a, as a chassis for feeding them methanol, these basic compounds, and then building bigger molecules like plastics or butanol that can be used, you know, to power cars or whatever, or to make other products, right? Um, so that's kind of like what we do with that. And, and ideally, what we would like to do is be able to feed this microorganism detritus, so plant cell wall material, and then build some of these things, right? So to kind of, you know, have instead of, you know, the reliance on fossil fuels, but using, you know, bacteria and plant waste, et cetera, to make something that we could potentially uh, use to, you know, bring down carbon dioxide and other um, 
gaseous uh, compounds in the atmosphere. Hmm. So, so you're essentially looking into how you could use this organism to clean up the atmosphere a little bit. In some way, yes, it, it wraps back around to that, right? Because yeah, we're using, you know, a uh, um, we're using an organism and, and product that can be regenerated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, with say building an atmosphere on Mars, do you have any ideas of how we would do that in the future? Ah, so that's very, very complicated, right? So, um, so I'm not a, a physicist or, or yeah. you know, <laughs> a planetary scientist, but I will say that when I was, uh, when I first started graduate school that you know, I took a, a chemical engineering course and that was one of the things that I, um, for one of my projects, I thought about how could we build an atmosphere? Obviously, you know, you know, building an atmosphere or having an atmosphere requires, you know, some type of gravity that keeps the atmosphere right so or you know some so for instance here on earth we have this you know the rotation of the um, earth's core that's uh, generating these electromagnetic waves that is creating our atmosphere and we have gravity that's strong enough that's you know maintaining the atmosphere i think uh, any planetary scientists don't don't uh, don't don't jump on me if that's the wrong description but i'm pretty sure that's that's how it works um, Mars is believed that it once had an atmosphere, but the core, you know, it's not rotating as much. I believe it's a dead core at this moment. So the atmosphere over time was stripped by solar waves from the sun, solar rays from the sun. All right. Um, so for it to make an atmosphere, we have to first and foremost have a way to contain the atmosphere. Otherwise, you're going to make it and it's going to be lost in space. And that's not productive at all. Um, so that would be one step. Secondly, you have to decide whether or not you're going to have um, create an atmosphere that uses, you know, uh, technology, right? You know, and that's expensive, right? Uh, if I remember, you know, a couple years back, to send one pound of anything to space, I believe it costs about ten thousand dollars, one pound. So that means for a person as big as I am, you know, it costs at least two hundred twenty thousand dollars right to send me to space that's a lot of money and we have these machines if you want to build anything there that you would want to send etc it's just not feasible in that way it's going to be too expensive you know and of course that that expense is linked to fossil um to uh hydrogen used to power or propel spacecraft um jet fuel um so you know that'd be expensive route another way um if you you know independent of trying to uh send things to space Mars has very, very rich metals, you know, it's full of metals in its soil. You can send something, right, that's able to, you know, collect dirt uh, uh, and make it into the things that you need, right? So like, you know, send something with 3D printing capacity, for example, that could print more copies of itself and then print, you know, the machine that you need to convert, uh, you know, CO2 or to generate, a, to, to generate an atmosphere that would keep some of these gases in. Um, but that would also be, you know, a, a technological feat that'd be um, difficult. Um, you could also uh, build little spheres. So instead of, you know, relying on, you know, uh, gravity from the planet, et cetera, et cetera, you could build domes, for example, and then make atmospheres that are contained at least within mm-hmm. the dome. In that way, that seems a little bit more reasonable to me. Um, and you can do that, uh, 
and then that way you just you can breathe within those domes, you know, just fine. So actually, on the new rover that was just sent, there was a machine that was you know, it's not necessarily there to you know generate a new atmosphere, but it's there at least to um, see whether or not it can take Martian carbon dioxide and convert it to oxygen for for human uh, missions, right? Um, so I think that's something cool cool there. Ideally, it'd be nice if you can use bacteria or something, right? And, yeah. you know, yeah. if you can use bacteria, take the CO2, um, then convert it to oxygen, you have something that is, you know, uh, sustainable in a way, but they need nutrients and they need, you know, energy and stuff too. So, I mean, it's complicated no matter where you go, um, how to do it. Um, but yeah, those are, I think, the basic requirements that one would need to, I guess, terraform a planet. <laughs> mm. But theoretically, if there was a place on Mars where there was nutrients that bacteria could survive, it could be done, right? Exactly. Yeah. At least in at least in small, small at a small scale, right? I can't say that you make mm -hmm. a, a atmosphere over the whole planet by based upon you know a pocket of bacteria living in mm -hmm. you know a crater, for example, right? So the benefit of you know why oxygen was able to, uh, you know, dominate our atmospheres again, because we were able to retain that oxygen. And because, I mean, the oceans is, you know, the ocean, right? You know, constitutes about 78% of the world, right? So you have this high dispersal of organisms creating oxygen, nutrients to its advantage all over the place, right? Always being input into the system, right? So, yeah. But I don't, I don't think they really found a whole lot of uh, nutrients on Mars, yeah, 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 exactly. So it would be it, that would be a difficult feat, right? So how would organisms? I mean, the sun, right? So the sun is a nutrient source, right? So you think mm -hmm. about you know, but it, what's important is like some kind of liquid water, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the problem on Mars is well, without an ozone layer, there's just so much uh, UV radiation, and it's exactly. also extremely cold. So it's it's kind exactly. of exactly. It's like an icy hot scenario. Exactly. So have you uh, delved at all uh, into CRISPR technology? So I have not actually. Something I, I, I want to do, I, obviously I know quite a bit about it. Um, actually, when I first started graduate school, that was like, I mean, it's still a big buzz, right? I mean, mm. the, the, the tech has opened up opportunities to, you know, a lot of stuff. So like what I was saying is cut and paste type idea, right? Yeah. Synthesizing organisms, right? A lot of it is done now using CRISPR-Cas9-based systems, right? Um, so yeah, uh, it's definitely a, a big thing. So I haven't used it yet. It's something I do ideally want to use, you know, in the in the future. Um, yeah, that, but I haven't used it. Could you explain CRISPR a little bit? Right, yeah. So CRISPR actually, um, while it has the media's attention or this buzz, about, you know, being able to use it to, you know, uh, take genes and, you know, uh, make edits within the genome, for example, is actually a bacterial system. It's actually a system that bacteria use to prevent invasion by bacterial phages. And these are viruses that infect bacteria. And how it works is when a virus or bacteriophage infects a bacteria, it injects its genome into it, right? And the bacteria says, okay, oh, well, says, I don't want to anthropomorphize the bacteria, <laughs> but the bacteria responds in a way that says, okay, hmm, 
here's a foreign inv invader. Let us pick some of this copy of this invader, right? And now we're going to integrate that piece of DNA, these small pieces of DNA into our genome. Once we integrate that into our genome, right? We now can recognize this bacteria, I mean, this virus that is in invading the cell based upon this, this unique genetic signature. And we're gonna take our, uh, our, our proteins, right? And we're going to cut that virus there and it's going to kill the virus, right? So that's basically how CRISPR works from a, from a bacterial perspective in the way that it evolved. Now, uh, um, this was found by uh, whew, Jennifer Dunda, Dauda, please, I think. Uh, yeah, Jennifer Dada, I believe. I'm um, sorry. Yeah, I definitely, 2014 is a long time. Um, she discovered this system, these repeating units within the genome of bacteria. And she said she didn't know what was going on. What is this, right? And then she found that that's how CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered. Um, and then she found that we can take sequences in the same way um, um, uh, um, of a gene, any type of gene across organisms, right? And now we can target that gene and we can either A, we can cut that gene out if it's something that's bad. We can actually replace a mutated position in that gene that's uh, causing disease, for example, and revert it to the wild type non-disease allele or alternate form of the gene, for example, and change it back and it's been successful in that way. So it's actually a, a bacterial defense system that we have co-opted or, or have exploited, right, to use to create uh, um, for, for uh, genetic manipulation. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and this could, I mean, I've, at least I watched this Netflix documentary on it or, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or part of it and, it seems like it has the capabilities of essentially healing almost all human diseases. It could, um, but uh, so it can, right? However, there's a time, uh, there's a time point in which that would be more likely, right? So you have to think, so bacteria, for example, there's single cells. You can make a change in a bacteria and because bacteria divide by binary fission, that means that they split and make two of themselves, right? Perfect, identical copies of themselves with mutations and things that in, in small minor changes in expression, or you may have a mutation that occurs at some rate relative to that bacteria. But in a perfect world, they split and create a perfect copy of themselves. So you get the immediate inheritance of those changes by a daughter cell, right? And that, that's actually quite different in humans, right? So the only time that that, you know, and, and other evolved eukaryotes, for example, um, the only time that we can, multicellular eukaryotes. Um, uh, and this is because we have our germline, we have our somatic lines, right? So germline, you know, our sperm, our, you know, our egg cells, for example, eggs are inherited from, you know, in women and they're there and present from birth through the end of life. Um, males, we regenerate, you know, our, you know, gametes, for example, you know, we, every so often, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions, you know, every day, we're constantly regenerating. Now, once, you know, um, with sex, and once you have, you know, the fusion of these gametes, right, now you have genetic material that's copying, one cell becomes two, two, four, four, eight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have this um, exponential growth of these cells, and it becomes very, very difficult now to take a system and then target all of those cells, 
right? And make those changes, right? So you get this patchwork of changes that would occur. Ideally, if CRISPR is to work, you know, the, in the best way, you know, in humans, you know, for example, to treat disease, you would want to identify the disease early on, right, during reproduction. So maybe do a screening of an egg and screening of a, a, a screening of a uh, the uh, of these two cells once they're together. Make those changes then, right, before the cell is allowed to develop into a to an embryo and go forth from that way. Right. So yes, it does have the power, but there's a time in which you'd want to use or to, to, to use that uh, technology um, to its full advantage. Hmm. Yeah, I guess kind of, even if you cure the disease, right, it can still pop up in future generations. Right. In a different, in a different cell, if you start later. Right. But again, if you started early, right within the development process right you know you it's like that that individual will have um that individual in itself won't have that mutation or speed of mutations causing that disease and because that's going to be relatively stable over its lifespan um that individual's lifespan when it mates with another individual you know um it won't at least uh, pass over that disease allele right now the other individual could if they have you know, uh, a mutation or an allele or some disease, right? They still could, right? Um, and again, we get into dominance and, you know, recessive, for example. Um, but yeah, it would be primarily gone from at least the individual in which some of this technology was applied to. So ethically, there are kind of these two moral predicaments that are kind of involved with this technology one you know there's people that are well it's you know it's immoral to uh say mess with a biology right it's immoral to mess with genes and then two there's well if we have the power to cure uh, genetically caused cancer then it's immoral not to cure it right mm -hmm. so what mm -hmm. do you think about that i mean so i definitely fall on the the right the second, right? So on the latter uh, um, side of the coin, right? I do feel like we have a more responsibility if we can um, as, you know, conscious, you know, bright, you know, humans that we are to fix things if that's the case. I mean, the medicine, right? So I have a headache, I'm gonna take some Advil or Aleve or Tylenol or whatever I'm going to take to, to fix that. Um, I, God forbid, I get cancer, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to seek chemotherapy or I'm going to seek radiation, right? So that, you know, I can cure that uh, disease. Um, there's so many, I, my ankles, my whatever, I'm going to go see a, a joint specialist, right? To fix those things, right? You know, I definitely believe that if we can do pre, uh, you know, preventative care, right? Why not? You understand? Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to fixing the problem once, once it's there. Um, I think more of the, a, a bigger ethical concern is who has access, mm. who would have access to some of these treatments, right? So um, you can imagine a scenario where someone goes in, there's a famous movie, like a very, very old movie called Gattaca. Um, that was very, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties that came out. And it was about this exact thing. Imagine going, you know, uh, and saying, okay, I want a baby with, you know, brown eyes, you know, uh, very dark skinned, you know, tall, slender, 
you know, 220 pounds, no bigger than that, all muscle, whatever, right? You can go and do that. Then you, you know, you then begin uh, to create, you know, these super humans or super, you know, you just get to really basically buy or purchase, you know, the traits that you want, right? Um, you want someone who is going to have an IQ of Einstein, right? What is that going to create? You know, that'd be cool, right? But what is that going to require? It's going to, re- you know, those with money, right? Those with weight, those with connections, whatever, however you want to say it, are going to be the ones that's going to have access to that, right? Mm-hmm. So then it's going to further stratify, right? You know, the elites and rich, poor, whatever. And I think that is a bigger, you know, concern than to say fixing or curing a disease is because we do that all of the time, right? We do that all of the time. We've been doing that since medicine, right? Uh, came about with the Medici family during the Renaissance. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, with this technology, uh, the rich are not only going to be rich, but they're also going to be not susceptible to any disease, super strong and uh, extremely intelligent. So, <laughs> and, right, right. And, they, you know, yeah, the cars, you know, that's that stacking the deck, I would yeah. say. <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of i mean it's kind of the argument well you know i mean this technology would be good in the hands of gandhi but maybe not in the hands of hitler exactly right yeah exactly but i mean that kind of goes with i mean with everything yeah that's true like uh nuclear power you know like Mm -hmm. because we could make nuclear bombs or we could make uh nuclear fusion reactors that power mm-hmm. the whole earth with just a drop of water right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly so all right you're out there you're always going to see you're always going to have opportunists or people who capitalize upon you know some tech or some feature right with evil intent you're always going to have that um you know unfortunately right but that's uh human nature so when i was watching that netflix documentary though there were people using CRISPR like in their basement with like $50 worth of equipment. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I like to tell people like, you know, scientists, a scientist, you know, you see us and we may, you know, present these very, very, uh, you know, big complex ideas. And of course it's, uh, you know, based on literature and it's based upon previous observations and our ability to take and dissect that information and interpret it in new ways or, you know, design experiments to answer new questions, right? Um, but science, science is, you know, actually pretty, pretty simple, right? It's pretty smooth in a sense, right? And I say that, you know, maybe I'm biased, right? Of course I can say I've had things and have <laughs> done things that are extremely hard, um, but it's pretty simple, right? If you, you read, you, you know, you study, you, you have, you know, uh, the internet is here at your disposal. Papers often, papers are often um, open access to access some of these uh, journal articles. Um, for example, um, protocols are around, right? So you can do stuff. And I think, you know, um, yeah, you have these, I don't want to say citizen sciences, scientists, but garage-based scientists, right? Who are, you know, doing things, right? I don't know if they're necessarily doing anything great um, in terms of, uh, I don't know what their intentions are. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course, it won't be published, but still, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's at least accessible in a way that allows people to do things, you know, simple, sim- simple, right. So, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, this one dude was trying to make his dog um, glow in the dark. Yeah. 
that's unethical. <laughs> that's unethical. You don't know about what, you know, what side effects are going to exist or, you know, be caused from, you know, doing some of these things, right? So, and that's another thing. For example, there are some um, uh, two children who were secretively, um, they use uh, CRISPR on these, uh, these embryos, right? Very early, early on. And now these children are, they can't contract um, HIV, right? So they don't have the receptor for that, right? Oh, okay, they shouldn't have done that. We have, you know, there's ethical concerns there, but one side effect of that in this case is that um, this same receptor, if I remember the story correctly, um, is also involved with intelligence, right? So it may be that these children, you know, just by virtue of, you know, having this mutation or having these changes done to, you know, reduce, um, to decrease or reduce, get rid of susceptibility to HIV, for example, now they may have an advantage in IQ, right? You know, so, and of course it was money in that family that gained them access to that type of technology, right? So again, that goes into the ethical, the ethics I was talking about earlier, right? So they're not susceptible to HIV and they're more intelligent? They have the potential to be. Potential. The potential, right? We don't know, right? Of course, you know, intelligence is, you know, is uh, a combination of things. You know, it may be genetics. I'm, you know, I don't believe in that argument too much. But also um, um, there is environment and a, including upbringing, schools, you know, where you go, you know, whatever, right? Um, so, yeah, they have the potential. There's also multiple kinds of intelligence. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, there's a spatial intelligence, you know, uh, being able to get around uh, symbolic intelligence, you know, uh, being able to represent things in your mind, like mathematics. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess like just street smarts in general. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's multiple levels to intelligence. I definitely agree with you. Mm -hmm. So is there any other ethical concerns that, comes up in your research? Um, I can't say that, I mean, in, in, in my own personal research that, you know, there are ethical concerns, you know, of course, you know, there are environmental hazards working with some of the things that I work with and stuff of that nature. But in terms of ethics, you know, um, you know, because I have access to, you know, different, you know, chemicals and different technologies, right? There's always that personal ethic responsibility, ethical responsibility to make sure that I am doing things, you know, in a way that um, wouldn't cause harm to, you know, the public or, you know, myself, for example. Um, I can't say in terms of any grand scheme, you know, big picture ethical concerns, at least what, with what I do, right? Um, that I've had to worry about that too much. Cool, well, I think that kind of, I think that sums it all up. It, is there anything else you'd like to say? Hmm. No, I think uh, so. Just, I would just like to thank you again for inviting me to come and talk with you today and just share, you know, a little bit of what I know and a little bit of what I do. Um, people can follow me at Incrimagy on Twitter.com. Um, and again, I'm at the University of Idaho. So yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate you. If anyone has any questions, just email into.the.absurd.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.